we're exploring the world of extreme endurance sports with the CEO of Ironman. Plus, the Diamondbacks are celebrating their National League pennant by floating the possibility of leaving the area. A lawsuit seeks to block a sports streaming venture between media giants and Amazon is paying $120 million to broadcast a single game. It's Thursday, February 22nd. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. Arizona Diamondbacks owner Ken Kendrick is floating the idea that the team could leave if they don't get some taxpayer money to renovate Chase Field. Joining me now to discuss is Front Office Sports newsletter co-author Eric Fisher. Welcome, Eric. Hello. Great to have you on. So what exactly does Kendrick and the Diamondbacks, what do they want here? So they're looking for some uh, help on a large-scale renovation of Chase Field, which is now 25-plus years old, showing its age, uh, needs a lot of upgrades to sort of bring it into modern standards, both from an amenity perspective and from a back-end infrastructure perspective. That project is estimated to cost 400 to $500 million overall, and some portion of that they would like help from the public sector. And I mean, he he said that he's not actually talking to other municipalities at this point, uh, but he said, you know, we could run out of time here. Any sense of how serious he is? Like, would he actually move the Diamondbacks? Um, I don't think we're quite there yet. This is this is you know, stadium negotiation 101. And we've just moved from the carrot phase to the stick phase. And we've seen this play out in a number of markets where if the normal course of negotiations don't get the team to where they want to go, this is a piece of leverage that they can try to manufacture. And we saw this most recently in Milwaukee last year when they were trying to get their half billion dollar uh, renovation uh, deal and lease extension for American Family Field done. And that had sort of dragged a little bit and you started seeing some stuff coming out in the local media. Well, maybe we're kind of done in Wisconsin here. And I don't think it was ever really serious, but it, it was enough to get the legislators uh, in Madison, their attention, and then the deal got done. And uh, I think the Diamondbacks here are just working from the very same playbook. Yeah, I mean, we saw something similar in Tampa with the Rays. The White Sox, you know, if they don't, if the state of Illinois, the city of Chicago just says, actually, we don't feel like giving you money. Yeah, this is a tried and true method. And I mean, in the in the future, I bet we're going to see you know, Reinsdorf say, you know, if, if we're not going to get my money... We, we've all been around long enough and Reinsdorf's been around long enough that we may see this come around a second time for the same club with the same owner. Right, exactly. Uh, and it is basically the one point of leverage that teams have when, um, you know, field places don't want to give up their public money. Um, you and I, I feel like we've both been sort of circling around this idea that the public is kind of turning against giving up hundreds of millions of dollars to renovate stadiums, build new stadiums. They're saying, you know, you're a for-profit business, you're a billionaire, do it yourself. Do you get that sense too? No doubt. And we're seeing this play out in a big way in Washington or really Northern Virginia with, with this uh, new uh, Potomac Yard project that Ted Leonsis is proposing for the Wizards and the Capitals. And there is big time pushback, uh, particularly among the uh, uh, legislators in Richmond uh, to uh, providing public support for that project. And that that project is contemplated on a lot of public sector support. And 
there's a lot of pushback on on that there. But elsewhere in the country, it's it's the same thing. And a lot of it just comes from the information and outlets like ours, where it's out there regularly what the revenues are and what the personal net worth of the owners is and what the franchise values of the owners. And you sort of counter that against with some very real public sector needs on basic things, housing, safe utilities, education, public safety. Uh, these are very real needs and trying to square those up with the sort of wealth of uh, these teams and these owners, uh, a lot of people are having a hard time reconciling that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as long as we're mentioning Washington, uh, the Nationals, the learners said, we're actually not going to sell the Nationals. Um, basically, things have gone in the exact reverse for how I thought they would in that area. I thought it was going to be, we figure out some amount of clarity on the whole situation with the regional sports network that's divided between uh, mass and divided between the nationals and the Orioles, then the nationals would get sold. Then maybe the Orioles would get sold. Instead, the Orioles got sold, you know, still pending approval. Um, and the nationals are sort of in a holding pattern or just saying they're not doing it. Yeah, it's interesting. We saw this sort of play out last year with the Angels, where Artie Moreno was all set to find a buyer for the Angels, and then he had a change of heart. And now we're sort of seeing this play out in um, in Washington with the learners. And I do think some of the desire to sell before was driven by, you know, the team was in a low point. They're still in a rebuilding mode, but you you had the instability with Masson and so forth. And um you know, minds can change and sentiments can change. And, and, you know, I think they sort of came to the conclusion that maybe there's still a lot of good reason to stay on that. There is now that clarity with Masson and things are looking up in a lot of ways for baseball. You still got more national money coming in and the team's improving maybe. And you had Josiah Gray and some other big stars developing in with Washington and, um, you know, maybe th- just the whole complexion for them looks different than it did, uh, particularly during the pandemic. And, and that was part of where that whole contemplation came from that, you know, it was kind of a low point for all of us and certainly a low point with the team and with the with the learners real estate business. Um, again, things look a little bit different now than they did in late 21, early 22. Eric Fisher, thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Sports-centered streaming service Fubo is suing to block the coming venture between ESPN, Fox, and Warner Bros. Discovery, saying it creates an illegal monopoly under antitrust laws. The legal filing states, For decades, defendants have leveraged their iron grip on sports content to extract billions of dollars in supra-competitive profits. Supra-competitive is the key term here. That means profits above what would be expected in an open market. I'm not a lawyer, nor do I play one on this podcast, but it feels like Fubo has an uphill battle here. It's true that this new combined company represents a major consolidation in sports streaming. But I've always seen this move as a response to a market in which these companies are uniting forces because they were outgunned on their own. Amazon remains on the hunt for top sports properties. Apple is getting more aggressive. YouTube has NFL Sunday ticket. And of course, there's Peacock and Paramount+. Plus. On the other hand, negotiations are ongoing over the NBA's next big set of deals and the college football playoff, among others. And now these three media giants won't have to bid against each other for streaming rights. For that reason, the major sports leagues could very well be hoping that Fubo's lawsuit is successful. Speaking of Amazon doling out huge sums of money for sports rights, sources tell Front Office Sports that Amazon is paying $120 million to broadcast a single game. Prime Video is getting exclusive rights to an NFL playoff game. This is a reversal for the streaming service, which considered doing the same for the most recent season, but instead passed on the game that ended up going to Peacock for $110 million. 
However, the service did find room in its budget for the NFL's first ever Black Friday game, for which it paid $100 million. Marquee sports events are increasingly central to Amazon's sports strategy, and it's now willing to pay unprecedented prices to get them. Despite plenty of fan grumbling, the Peacock game was the most live-stream event in U.S. history, with an average audience of 23 million viewers. That was actually more than NBC's wildcard game the previous year. And Netflix has been very tentative around live sports, but it's not afraid of a good docuseries. On Wednesday, the streamer announced a series on the Montreal Expos and their eventual departure to Washington, D.C., where they became the Nationals. We have a Twitter poll up on our main FOS account. Let us know if you are interested in an Expos series. I voted yes, but feel free to weigh in there. Up next, I spoke with the new CEO of the Ironman group, Scott DeRue. Ironman has been a hub for extreme athletes for decades, and now it's looking to continue growing on that front while also drawing in people as spectators and fans. That conversation is coming up right after this. I'm joined now by Scott DeRue, CEO of the Ironman Group. Welcome, Scott. Oh, and it's a th- it's an honor. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, great to have you on. So let's just orient any listeners who aren't familiar with Ironman. Uh, what is the Ironman Group? What do you guys do? The Ironman Group is the largest organizer in the world of mass participation in sports. Uh, that runs across uh, long-distance triathlon, uh, mountain biking, road running, trail running, uh, essentially the endurance sport community. Uh, and, uh, and we've built this collection of races and events uh, across 50 plus countries now. Wow. Um, and is there a sort of a signature Ironman event? I think of you guys as like the triathlon company, but obviously, you know, there's, there's more to it than that. But is there one, if there had to be like one like Ironman thing, is, is, uh, is it like, you know, a, a big central triathlon so certainly the history of Ironman Group is rooted in triathlon. Many people know Ironman as the event, uh, the triathlon event. And we do uh, a number of Ironman and Ironman 70.3 events around the world. Uh, obviously, the origin and uh, where it all started is in Kona in Hawaii. And so that is a signature iconic event and dream for many people around the world. Uh, But one of the things that makes us really unique and special is building out a collection of endurance events across sports uh, in these really iconic destinations around the world that inspire people to want to push themselves and challenge themselves uh, and really uh, explore what their boundaries are and the limits of what human possibilities are. So it's, it's really exciting times. Yeah, um, it's the Ironman is something I think of more as like, you know, it's like a marathon where it's, um, it's something people talk about doing more than than watching. Um, And, and, you know, so yeah, I think of it more as a participation thing. Is there a media element for you as well? Or is it really just about, you know, inspiring people and training people to, to do these, you know, very impressive endurance events? Certainly, we want to inspire people to participate and engage and experience these moments uh, of uh, of possibility of human of human possibility. I mean, to me, Ironman and 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 the uh, the sports that we represent is the greatest expression of human achievement that one could imagine. So certainly, we want to inspire our athletes to engage and experience that. Uh, but also, there is a content and a media play uh, to it as well. 
Uh, and that's part of inspiring the community of endurance athletes around the world is bringing them into the experience in ways that they might not otherwise be able to do. Uh, and that inspires them to want to engage uh, going forward. So uh, we see it both as the experiential and the events that we put on around the world, uh, but also inspiring our community through uh, content, media, uh, and uh, it's a big part of what we do. Mm -hmm. and, and where have you seen growth in, in that realm? Is it, is it a lot of social media or, or you know, what's, what's kind of your, your sweet spot there? Uh, certainly there's a social media component to it, and that's a big part of what we do. And if you check out, uh, you know, the Ironman uh, social, uh, the, uh, the Rock and Roll Marathon series, the UTMB uh, social, you'll see this inspirational content uh, and various forms of media that is really connecting with our communities around the world. Um, at the same time, uh, for example, the World Championships this year for, for Ironman, uh, we had uh, both in Kona and in Nice. And there's a, a, an amazing documentary uh, that we did on the World Championships in Nice and Kona uh, this year that's on Outside Watch that is uh, just it's so inspiring to experience not only the race, but to connect with the athletes and their stories from the elite professionals that represent the greatest expression of achievement all the way to our age groupers that have these very inspiring personal stories and you see what they go through with families and full-time jobs and they still find the energy and the time in their lives to train to be their very best despite in some cases all odds uh, and so I'm inspired by all of our athletes around the world. And so a documentary like that uh, is, a, is a great example. We're in an interesting time right now for, for fitness and participation sports. Um, you know, during the pandemic, it was, that was one of the big stories of, you know, people were biking and running and pickleball started to explode. And so what are you seeing right now in terms of uh, where there's growth in terms of what people are, are doing as, as fitness activities? Certainly during the pandemic, people's habits changed. And there's a number of reasons for that, that we all lived and experienced. What we're seeing now is people want these experiences. They want to push themselves. They want to challenge themselves. And we're seeing a resurgence. Uh, for example, with triathlon, our registrations for our 70.3 races are, uh, are, are growing rapidly. Uh, that creates a funnel for our full distance Ironmans that we're starting to see growth there as well. Obviously, during the pandemic, those, those were challenged uh, sports. So we're seeing those recover very nicely. We're also seeing a lot of growth in trail running. And this is true across the globe. A lot of interest in combining uh, a passion for running with a passion for being outdoors and, and really bringing those together uh, to create some, with UTMB, uh, world-class, iconic uh, trail running destinations. So we're seeing a lot of growth in triathlon. We're seeing a lot of growth uh, in trail running that we're really excited about. And are, are there specific opportunities that you're seeing as, you know, a CEO of Ironman where you see, you know, potential growth or, or growth that's you're seeing right now in terms of specific types of events that you have? Yes. And a big part of that is as people have come back to these participation sports, 
uh, introducing uh, new races, new destinations to create that inspiration. Uh, so that's true in our Ironman, Ironman 70.3 series. It's true in UTMB. And so we've announced recently some really exciting uh, races. We got a lot of positive feedback uh, uh, this past week when we announced uh, the world championship for our 70.3 in, in Marbella, Spain uh, in 2025. Uh, so there's growth in, uh, in triathlon, growth in, in trail running with the existing, but also the new races uh, that we're launching around the world. Uh, and so we're really excited uh, about where we are today. But also, if I look out over the next two to three years, the, the demand, the interest that we're seeing in endurance sports generally uh, is very favorable, and we're really excited. And that 70.3 number, what does that refer to? Uh, it's essentially a half Ironman. Uh, and so, uh, you know, a, an Ironman distance triathlon, uh, 2.4 miles of, of swim, uh, 112 miles of, uh, of bike, and, and then a marathon. Uh, and so cut that in half and you got your 70.3. Got it. Yeah. Just, you know, just tossing a marathon at the end. No, no big deal. Um, yeah. And talk to me a bit about the athletes. I mean, it's, I'm not sure what to say other than like, these have to be some of the best athletes in the world, um, to do that. Um, but, but yeah, it's, uh, what would you say about the, the people who are drawn to that kind of activity? The common thread is, they want to push themselves, challenge themselves. And, you know, we create life-changing experiences for people because people discover through these events that they are stronger than they could even imagine. And so it's really about creating these transformational life-changing experiences. So I'm inspired by all of the diversity in our community of athletes you have our professional athletes where they are legitimately the best athletes in the world. It's remarkable what they are able to perform and do. But you also have your first time Ironman participant or your first time UTMB participant or your first time running a half marathon at one of our rock and roll uh, races. And these are folks that have found the source of inspiration to push themselves and challenge themselves. And they too discover that they are stronger than they thought. So they may not be a professional athlete. They may not perform at the same level as the pros, but they are creating this life-changing moment for themselves and discovering their potential and to me, that is the common thread that brings a very diverse community of athletes together. And you mentioned you're in over 50 countries right now. Are there areas of the world that you know are somewhat new territory for you, or you're just seeing a lot of growth and enthusiasm? We're seeing a lot of growth and enthusiasm across the board. Uh, and that's certainly the case in North America, throughout Europe, the Middle East, uh, Africa, throughout Asia. So we're seeing a lot of growth across the board. Uh, I'm really ex excited about um, uh, where some of the white space might be, not only from a geographic uh, expansion opportunity, uh, but what we can do in our existing markets by introducing new races that inspire people uh, to either repeat uh, engagement with Ironman, Ironman 70.3 or UTMB, 
uh, with our trail running or any of our other running or mountain biking, cycling. Uh, it's, it's not, it's, it, there's geographic expansion and new opportunities and white space there, but there's also innovation in terms of new events, new destinations in our existing markets. But what I will say is that one of the things that even, and you know, I'm in my first week at, uh, at the Ironman group, and one thing that's very clear to me is the opportunity for innovation around the athlete experience and the opportunity to really elevate that experience. And this is where, by engaging our community and doing a lot of listening and learning to their ideas, uh, I get really excited. So it's not only about new races, new sports, but it's also about new experiences and innovation around that experience. And if you could just say a little bit more about that, what, what do you mean by innovating the athlete experience? Well, and it's... It, I, it, so I'm in day four uh, of, of this of this role. So it, it's it's too early for me to say with specifics uh, what we will do or not do in terms of the athlete experience. Uh, and so the next step, uh, so I start uh, going out to our events and I'm already in communication with uh, uh, some of our athletes and uh, constituencies to do a lot of listening and a lot of learning. Uh, but what I'm hearing is a desire to be inspired and a desire to be inspired by the experience. And so that leads me to believe that there are opportunities for innovation around the experience. Uh, and that's true on race day, but it's also true throughout the journey. And so, you know, to answer your question with some specificity, an endurance athlete is generally training at some level year round. And maybe they do, you know, if they're a professional, yes, they're doing many more events, but maybe they do a couple events a year, right? Maybe they do four or five events a year. How can we be a partner to that endurance athlete, not only on race day with an extraordinary experience and world-class event, but throughout their entire year, whether that's training and content and media that is inspiring and educational, we can really transform our relationship with the athlete to be a full year-round experience, not just a race day experience. And so that's something I'm really excited about exploring with our team and our community. All right. Very inspiring. Scott Drew, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you, Owen, very much. That's it for today. Subscribe to Front Office Sports Today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen or share an episode with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.